Good morning. I know every single person in this room, but just in case you forgot because you haven't had enough coffee, I am the Reverend Lori Anzalotti. Um, today I have the pleasure of introducing just one of the finest people I know. This is Mr. Jeff Schulenberg. He is a liaison, which is a volunteer um, title with Faith and for the Sake of All. Um, I was the director of Faith and for the Sake of All while I was in seminary at Eden, and Jeff was one of the very first people that um, I was able to share, who we could share a vision together of bringing information from the For Sake of All report and from this one, what you'll see today, Dismantling the Divide, Segregation in St. Louis. Jeff shared that vision and he took his professional talents that he used to use to sell dog food for Ralston Purina and now uses those talents to spread the kingdom, to talk about inequities that exist and how we can address them and repair them. And Elizabeth Hines is also a liaison with us in Faith and for the Sake of All, for those who might not know. Um, Faith and for the Sake of All last weekend launched an expansion project it will be bringing temples, churches, and African-American churches in North City together to do some really tough discussions around our history of racism, around trauma, around healing, and then to envision programming that can bring new life into the African-American congregation using the resources of the other temples and churches in that area. That's what I call beloved community that we talk about here at Holy Communion. But all of that begins, as we know, all of that beloved community begins with one thing, truth-telling. We can't become beloved community until we tell the truth. And Jeff is here today to tell the truth about housing in our city. So with that, I will turn it over. I, I do want to say that we're doing an abbreviated version of the usual um, presentation. There's always three parts, data, faith, and action. Jeff will be doing the data this morning. We'll be doing the faith reflection at our small tables. And then we will be um, talking more about action in the coming weeks at our next um, forums, for I. So, without further ado, I turn over an abbreviated data version to Jeff. Good morning. Well, as Lori <laughs> thank you. Um, as Lori said, this is going to be a little bit of an abbreviated version, so I'm going to go quickly. Um, if you really have a burning question, I can try to stop and, and field it, but we're going to need. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I mostly want to give you exposure to some of the facts that came out of this report that help us understand how we got to where we are today. One of the things that we usually do in the full workshop is this whole exercise around buying a house. And we, con we conclude that exercise with this slide. We look at where you can buy half million dollar homes in St. Louis. And that's a map of St. Louis and what you see is half million dollar homes tend to kind of be clustered out the central corridor. So it starts around U City, it goes through Ladue and Town and Country and Chesterfield and kind of the usual suspects. When you look at $200,000 homes, that kind of breaks north and south. 
So we see similar clusters. Now there's exceptions all over the place, but this is where they cluster. These, these uh, the uh, homes that are for sale in these price ranges. Lastly, if you look at $50,000 homes, you are looking at North City, flat out. That's just where they are for sale. The question we ask people, if you could picture these homes and the neighborhoods that they're in, picture a half million dollar home, the kinds of parks that are nearby, the quality of the schools, the, the condition of the home itself. Look at the $200,000 and lastly the $50,000 schools. How walkable are the streets? What are the conditions of the schools? What are the amenities that are nearby? Okay, you, you can see there's going to be a huge difference. And what's so unfortunate in St. Louis in particular is that you could also talk about those houses. If you were to stand on the front porch and look around, you can almost predict what the color of your neighbor's skin is going to be based on where those houses are. And the challenge for us to understand is how did we get to a place where you can almost predict what the color of your neighbor's skin is going to be just based on the location of your house. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Historically in St. Louis, how did we get to this place? Before we actually go into the data, though, I want to acknowledge that for, for many in the African-American community, these facts can represent a painfully lived reality with which you are all too familiar. For, for you, this review might give, help to give voice to the story of what you've lived. Um, it might help you to organize your thoughts in, in how you process your experience of St. Louis. But it also might be painful to listen to. We've had people get upset listening to this data because they, they see the systemic oppression that happened in, in the history of their family and what it feels like to live that today. The challenge sometimes for us in the white community can be that this is a history that's often conveniently forgotten. It's just not understood. Sometimes it's intentionally buried, but oftentimes it's just not known or recognized. But it's only, as Laurie said, this is about truth. It's only by shining a light on this truth that we can, we can hope to have an open conversation about a path forward. So to borrow from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., facing these facts can be a first step in seeking to shorten the long arc of the moral universe in pursuit of justice for some, but for the sake of all. I'm going to touch on some of the historic tools of segregation, and again, we're going to go very quickly. We're going to talk about racial zoning, restrictive deed covenants, and the federal housing FHA policies. And we're going to, what, what this um, revolves around is the Great Migration, is when we're talking historically, we're starting in the, around 1915. From about 1915 to 1970, there were some 6 million African Americans that fled the Jim Crow South to northern and western states. As they arrived in St. Louis and cities like St. Louis, there was tremendous residential expansion going on. For a while, it was also the post-war period, so you just had this tremendous boom in housing. So you've got quite a few people that are all trying to find a place for their families to live. But what they encountered in a city like St. Louis were, were things like this, where there was a citywide zoning ordinance of 1916. This was placed on the voting ballot in a citywide racial zoning law that prohibited African Americans from purchasing or renting in blocks that were more than 75% white. The ordinance included a, quote, reasonable, I love that word, reasonable provision, 
whereby gradually such blocks may become in time wholly, occupied wholly by either white or colored people, not white and colored people together. The ordinance was deliberately forcing, teasing apart white and black citizens. That ordinance was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1917. So it became necessary for St. Louis to try to maintain the levels of segregation that they were seeking. They had to turn to new tools. And one of the tools that they turned to were restrictive deed covenants. So these were covenants that were placed onto a property deed. And they prohibited the sale of a home to a person of color, basically. So if you look at this restrictive deed covenant, this is what that, uh, on the, parag on the paragraph on the left says. No property in said editions shall at any time be sold, conveyed, rented, or leased in whole or in part to any person or persons not of the white or Caucasian race. No person other than one of the white or Caucasian race shall be permitted to occupy any property in said edition or portion thereof or building thereon except a domestic servant actually employed by a person of the white or Caucasian race where the latter is an occupant of such property. That is how strict these covenants were, that if you owned a home and you were white, you could, and you were in a white neighborhood, you could not sell to a person of color. There were, by, by the 1940s, there were nearly 380 neighborhood restrictive deed covenants, and every one of those affected up to hundreds of houses. So this was very, very broadly scattered throughout St. Louis, very widespread, and deliberately kept out. So as, as the six million were coming from the South and seeking a place of fresh start to, to live the American dream, when they got to St. Louis, they were told, not in my backyard. You cannot move into this neighborhood. We have a restrictive deed covenant. You're not allowed here. This was changed by the courts in 1948 when Ethel Shelley was sold a home that had a restrictive deed covenant. There was a neighbor who lived 10 blocks away who was upset about Mrs. Shelley purchasing the home in this community, and he tried to sue to enforce the covenant. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they ruled that the state courts could not enforce these covenants. However, they didn't declare the covenants themselves to be illegal. They said they simply ruled on whether or not the state courts could enforce them. These covenants remained on many mortgages for years, and it wasn't until 1972, 1972, that a, that a federal appellate court actually banned the existence of these covenants. And by the way, if you were to check your own neighborhood covenants, there's a good chance you would find one of these attached to your own uh, uh, property deeds because it costs money to undo them, and a lot of uh, neighborhoods and, and homeowners associations haven't bothered to take these off. So let's take a closer look at how federal policies um, interacted with racially restrictive covenants and other, other uh, tools that were used. Understand that in 1933, President Roosevelt created a post-depression incentive through the New Deal, and that included federally backed, more affordable home mag mortgages. Prior to 1933, when you were trying to take out a mortgage on a property, you usually had to put half down, 50% down, and you had to pay it off in three to five years. Imagine trying to buy a house. I mean, that's how we, those are the terms for our cars now. <laughs> Imagine trying to buy a home under those conditions. So all of a sudden, he, they, they created this new uh, mortgage system that made houses available to so many more people. And so 
the American dream is there. It's just dangled in front of the population unless you were a person of color. And that's where some of the other tools came in, starting with redlining. This is a map of St. Louis that is color-coded basically based on the composition of the neighborhood based on race. So what happened was the newly created Homeowners Loan Corporation created what they called security maps to help banks decide where there was risk in lending. So they, and they based it strictly on race. So if you lived in a neighborhood that was either red or orange, that was a neighborhood the banks would not loan any money into. It was deemed an unnecessary risk. And you can see the description under D. It says, hazardous, marked by the infiltration or the presence of a colored settlement or Negro colony. These maps were used across the country by the Federal Housing Administration. So all of a sudden, just because you live in a neighborhood, regardless of the condition of the home, regardless of the income of its residents, that didn't matter. All that mattered was that you were a person of color, so you were deemed a hazardous security risk, and you weren't able to secure any mortgages. Redlining was also uh, behind other raci racially discriminatory tools that were employed by the FHA. As this huge housing boom was happening and developers needed to build into the suburbs or create the suburbs, they needed federal housing um, uh, funding. And so to get that funding, they'd have to apply, but it was written into the federal office, uh, office's underwriting manual that you had to guarantee that your subdivision would be entirely white. You had, that, that was one of the preconditions of getting the, the funding to build these major settlements. So the large-scale loans, and this is a picture of Ferguson in the 1950s, to build a subdivision like this as a builder, as a developer, you had to assure, ensure that it was going to be an all-white subdivision. And this is from the Federal Housing Administration. This is, this is not some, some local organization that was trying to, to oppress a population. This was federal policy. And there were a lot of exceptions where some developers tried to get financing to build a, a, a subdivision that would be primarily for an African-American community, and they had a terrible time doing it. They were usually denied. So redlining assured that low-interest loans were almost exclusively given to whites, and the FHA policies also made sure that any new subdivisions were only available to whites. And it got to the point where in St. Louis and the surrounding area, from 1947 to 1952, over those five years, there were about 70,000 new homes built. Tremendous boom in housing. 35 out of those 70,000 were available to people of color. So think of that. When you have this tremendous migration coming from the South, and you've got the African-American community looking for a place to settle, and there's all this new development going on, and you have access to none of it, virtually none of it. The impact of redlining, even going to 1962 to 1967, when we look at the history of Federal Housing Authority loans, we see that only 3.3% of all loans approved by the FHA went to African Americans. So that in the St. Louis area, that equated about 400,000 St. Louis area mortgages. 3.3% went to African Americans. The rest went to whites. 
So it greatly limited the ability of the African-American community to enjoy home ownership. And it kind of begs the question, what's home ownership meant in your family? So when you have a home and home prices are appreciating consistently, and home prices keep going up, that creates intergenerational wealth for your family. And a lot of times we don't, we don't recognize the value of, of that home ownership in our own families. I was talking to my older brother about this. We grew up in Buffalo, New York, and I was giving him some of these facts, and he was, he was pushing back saying, oh, come on, Jeff. We, you know, our house was this little three-bedroom brick bungalow in Buffalo, New York. You know, it, it didn't really do anything for us. Well, we lost Dad at a, at a young age, and I asked my brother, I said, how much money did you spend supporting Mom? And he said, oh, well, I didn't spend anything supporting Mom. Oh, why not? Well, she, she sold the house and was able to pretty much uh, keep herself going uh, for the rest of her life. None of us kids, uh, there were five of us, we all had to pay for our own college and we did a lot of things on our own and we referred to ourselves as self-made and of course we started on third base, but that's beside the point. But in talking to my brother, I, I asked him, I said, what if that house hadn't been in the family, that simple little house that you kind of dismiss? And we had had, instead of paying for our own college, suppose we had to help support mom. What might have the trajectory of all the kids look like if we hadn't been able to go to college, if we'd had to support mom, if we'd had to start work earlier, real work? Um, and so it, it kind of put him back on his heels a little bit. But we forget, we take for granted the advantages that we've had in home ownership. And when you look at the extent to which home ownership has been denied for generations, of the African-American community, you start to see how there becomes such a disparity in the wealth that we see today. We're still living with the effects of all of these policies. Even though some of them have been outlawed, they, we're still living with the effect. So there is, uh, in 1968, uh, there was the uh, Fair Housing Act where finally some of these rules, or some of these laws were, were declared illegal. It prohibited, the Fair Housing Act prohibited discrimination in all facets of the home owning or home buying process. The problem is it wasn't really given any enforcement mechanism until the 1980s. So we still, there still had to wait. So the decades of the federal, state, and local policies that restricted African American home ownership from the time of the Great Migration until 1968 left so many African Americans without the wealth that their white counterparts had. This included loans that were subsidized by the GI Bill and FHA uh, policies. So at this point, what's been created is a system where the intergenerational wealth that's been denied to the African American community has created huge disparities. Even today, the wealth of the average white family is 10 times that of the average African American family. I mean, think about that, 10 times. They, the African-American family, on average, has 10 cents on the dollar for every dollar that the white community has. So moving forward, since the discrimination and segregation based on race is now illegal, you don't need to base it on race. You can now base it on wealth because we have such a wealth disparity that you, can, you don't have to say, oh, I don't want African-Americans in my neighborhood. I just don't want poor people. I'm not racist. I just don't want poor people knowing that to very disproportionately, those poor people are African-American. And so we got to the modern tools of segregation, which are zoning policy, eminent domain, annexation, TIFs, tax increment financing. So let's talk a little bit about, first of all, 
exclusionary zoning and using zoning to create segregation. So as these suburban municipalities grew, they began, they were looking for a wealthy tax base. And so what they did is they began to set rules that they knew would attract a wealthier clientele. However, by definition, that excluded less affluent families and, and also African Americans. So what you see what's zoned here is the large lot is the, is the deeper orange, the slightly lighter orange is a smaller lot. That large lot of, around, of at least 22,000 square feet, those are half acre lots, basically. So those are pretty large lots. And usually in St. Louis, a larger, not always, but a large lot tends to mean a larger home, more expensive home. So what you're seeing here is by zoning, with, by lot size or sometimes by home size, what you were doing was basically setting yourself up to only allow rich people to come into this area. And that's how we ended up with, for example, with a central corridor like we did. So typically, since a large lot means a large home, you, you began to continue this trend of separating where the African-American community was going to be allowed to live. Another tool was eminent domain. Um, this is a picture of Dr. Howard Venable, who was a distinguished eye surgeon practicing at both Homer G. Phillips Hospital and at Barnes Jewish. And he and his wife began trying to build a home in Creve Corps in the 1950s, but they faced impossible hurdles. And they were denied sewer permits. They were, there were just all kinds of bureaucratic red tape that was thrown in their path. And finally, the city just said, you know what, we're, we're just through eminent domain, we are taking this property. And they just physically took it over from him. And what they did was they um, rezoned it as a park. And until this past November, that, the name of that park was Bernie Park in Creve Corps. Finally, there was a, a committee that, that was established to, to try to bring some justice to that situation, and it is now renamed the H. Philip Venable Memorial Park. Another example came from Mill Creek Valley, which was the single largest displacement of African Americans in the region's history. Uh, in that case, there were 20,000 residents, 95% of whom were black, that um, were displaced because of the uh, I-64 construction, expansion of SLU, and, and other projects. And then you ask, well, where did all those 20,000 people go, mostly African Americans? Well, a lot of them went to the new, at the time, a fairly new high-rise called uh, Pruitt-Igoe. Pruitt-Igoe became kind of a, a poster child for public housing failure, and it was raised in 1972. Annexation, um, another tool where uh, uh, territories can be uh, brought into the domain of a city. And, and what happened here was in Meacham Park, there was a, a very modest but proud community of African Americans that were living adjacent to Kirkwood. And uh, what happened was that there was a, a proposal for a third of Meacham Park as it was annexed into Kirkwood for a third of that area to be um, uh, given to developers. That's where we got the Target today and some of the other stores that are in that plaza. So it, I have to say, a lot of the residents did agree to this, the African-American residents of Meacham Park, because there were a lot of promises made about how they were going to get a one-for-one. One. If their house was taken away, they were going to be offered another house. And it all sounded like a pretty good proposition, so they voted for it. But the re reality was far less than what was promised. And when they realized where their new house was going to be built, a lot of them just walked away and said, no, this isn't, this isn't at all a place where we want to be. So what ended up happening is that 28, the, the, area, the Meacham Park area saw a 28% drop in its population 
and the area remains mostly segregated today. The promises that were made were never delivered. Similar things happened in Brentwood to build the Brentwood Promenade and in Clayton to build what is now the financial hub of our, of our area. And then throughout South St. Louis to build I-44. People being displaced, um, areas being annexed, and people being forced out of their homes. Tax increment financing. Um, so this is where they're taking, we take a portion of the taxes that are generated by new development to pay for the construction costs of, of, a, of a community project. These TIFs are intended to be used in disadvantaged areas. However, when they did a review of this, of the TIFs from 2000 to 2014 for the St. Louis region, what they found was that 84% of the TIF monies ended up going into wealthier white neighborhoods. Again, best of intentions, sounds like a good program, but the execution ended up not serving the people that it was supposed to serve. Even when the TIFs are applied to a disinvested area, what often happens is that that development displaces existing residents, and the subsequent gentrification of a neighborhood can force people out. We're seeing a lot of that in the Grove right now, uh, in other areas of St. Louis. Also, because of the arrangements of a TIF with tax dollars going back to a developer, those tax dollars do not go into local schools, public services, and so you end up oftentimes with an, an area that's disadvantaged. The, and there was a quote from the East-West Gateway Council in 2011. They said, the use of tax incentives has exacerbated economic and racial disparity in the St. Louis region. A tool that was supposed to improve things has actually made them worse. So the, the issue is that these modern tools of segregation that we talked about are still in place today. Um, the older practices were struck down, but again, because of the, the wealth disparity, the, the other tools that, that followed them are still in place and are still working to keep our area segregated. And you have to ask yourself, are these tools working? Well, I don't think you have to look real hard in St. Louis to realize how segregated we are racially. So I live out in West County, and I can tell you there, there are so few people of color. And when I go to church, I see very, very few people of color. When we try to give these presentations out there, we have a lot of folks that are just like open mouth saying, are you kidding? I had no idea it was like this. <laughs> you give that presentation in the city, and they're just saying, uh-huh, yeah, tell me something I don't already know and feel. There's so much of a disparity and yet there is so much ignorance about the realities within St. Louis. And those realities manifest themselves, and so this is a map showing a dissimilarity index, and it's just kind of a fancy way of saying <coughs> which neighborhoods look alike and which neighborhoods are in fact integrated and have more of a cross-cultural influence. And all of the, the lighter, the, the, the orange through the yellow, are pretty much areas where they, there's a lot of segregation, either mostly white or mostly black. And you can see there's kind of a narrow band of a fairly integrated section in St. Louis, but mostly, mostly, we live very segregated lives. And what that ends up meaning is that there is great exclusion. There's a lot of ex exclusivity. The most exclusionary communities, for example, number one is Warson Woods, two, Westwood, Clarkson Valley, Ledoux, De Pere, so when you look at the deep orange, those are the communities in St. Louis that are the most exclusive. 
And the problem with this is that they're not only exclusive in terms of who gets to live, but they have the most amenities. They have the nicest parks, the best schools. They have the best access to networking and, and uh, job seeking. We had, we had some friends move from our parish because the wife moved from, uh, or she, she switched from working for another corporation to owning her own business. They moved to Clayton because there were so many people in Clayton that they could network with and build their client base for her, for her business. You don't have that opportunity if you live in North St. Louis. Not only is it almost impossible to have the wealth to move into one of these neighborhoods, where you, exist, where you live today, you just are denied any of those opportunities. So we are segregated. We are exclusionary. It comes from our history, and it continues into our present. So let's take a quick look at how this can manifest in real-life situation. These are two houses that um, have a shared history. They're only 11 miles apart. The once-proud house on Wells Avenue on the right-hand side was built in 1907. At the time, it was a short walk from CBC and Visitation. It was in a working-class neighborhood. Leo and Margaret Reed, who were white, bought this house in 1922, and they stayed there for 31 years. What they did is, is as this neighborhood it, it transitioned. It was, very, it was adjacent to an African-American neighborhood, and so as the black community needed new places to move. They, they came into this neighborhood, and within 10 years, the Wells Avenue neighborhood transitioned from being mostly African-American, I mean, sorry, mostly white to mostly African-American. So it was redlined, and you could no longer get a mortgage to buy a house in the Wells Avenue neighborhood. So when Leo Reed Sr. Was trying, wanted to sell the house, he couldn't. Nobody, nobody could get a mortgage to buy it from him. In the meantime, his son goes off to war, comes back and uses the GI Bill to buy the house in Glendale on the left. All right, so it's the same family, okay? But now his son is living in the house in, in Glendale. His son inherits the house in Wells Avenue from his father, can't sell it because it's redlined, so he rents it out to two African-American sisters. They pay rent for years on the house. He finally, because the house is, is falling down in condition, the neighborhood is deteriorating, nobody can invest in the neighborhood even if they wanted to. So he ends up just giving the house to the sisters who in turn will it to one of their daughters. Their daughter gets it and says, I can't do anything with this house. I can't, I can't, take, I can't sell it. I can't take out a loan to improve it. So she ends up just turning the house over to the city and that's the condition of the house today. Whereas the house in Glendale... Uh, sold in 2016 for $365,000, more than 18 times its original cost. The wealth accumulation of the house in Glendale went to a white family. The rent and all the money that was dumped into the house on the right and ended up with absolutely no value is what happened in the black community. This happens thousands and thousands of times. And that's what starts to create that disparity, and that's why today the African-American community has 10 cents on the dollar for what the white community has. Um, when we look at the wealth gap, uh, we're looking at a difference of 85,000 in 1984 between whites and blacks. Now it's up to 236,000. Well, that's in 2009. Over 25% of that is attributable to years of home ownership. And what's almost frightening is that at, at current rates, it'll take the average African-American family 228 years to catch up. When we look at the regional effect, what we see is that an area that is segregated, as St. Louis is segregated, the entire region is held back. 
So in a region that's segregated by race as well as skills has a slower rate of income growth. In fact, they grow only at about two-thirds the rate of a city that is integrated and more functional. We're holding ourselves back. During an economic recovery, more inclusive cities recover better, and according to the, the Urban Institute, St. Louis ranks 260th out of 274. Remember when Amazon was, was for a brief moment considering St. Louis? And very quickly they took us off the table. And one of the things that they told the city was that you don't have the, the, the quality of the labor force and the education system that we need to find a labor pool that we need for our, for our operation. Because you have entire swaths of the city that are underserved, that are undereducated, that are oppressed. And yeah, you've got some, some, some really fine schools out in West County, but we need the whole city behind us. We need a labor pool to pull from that you don't have, St. Louis. So we are, we are, when we talk about for the sake of all, we are all hurting, hurt by the fact that we have oppressed a major portion of our population and we're failing to live up to God's promise. Another fact that, that um, came out of the, this type of reporting, this is from the Health and Wellness Report from For the Sake of All, the original report. If you're born in uh, North St. Louis, zip code 63106, you have a life expectancy of 67 years. If you were born in Clayton, just 10 miles away, you have a life expectancy of 85. You get 18 more years of life expectancy just because you were born into the right zip code. Or conversely, you lose that 18 years born into the wrong zip code. 18 years happens to be about the time, the, the duration of many folks' retirement. So when you consider a person who's worked all their life in zip code 63106 and paid into Social Security, they collect nothing for what they've put in. Those are the kinds of realities that, that are being faced. And just in case you ladder to the same place I did, to be honest, when I, when I saw the statistic, I thought, well, of course they don't live as long. They're shooting each other and they're killing each other in the streets. They, they went through and did a statistical analysis and, and looked at causes of the premature deaths that they were seeing. And they put this in a pie chart that we don't have here, but basically there was one narrow sliver that was only, only caused 5% of the discrepancy in life expectancy. That's where the violence came in. The rest of it had excuse me, had to do with health and wellness, had to do with the environment that they're raised in, the lack of education, and all the other things we've talked about. So, just a quote to think about. There's just a lot of emotional tension that prevents people from speaking honestly about race. The results of racist housing policy is that we don't live near each other, we don't know each other, we don't speak to each other, we don't understand each other, and we don't even fully understand the policies and the laws that got us here. You know, you think about where we started with that discrepancy in, in housing values and um, the impact of, of that wealth discrepancy on generations of African Americans versus whites. There's, there's a randomness, there, there's an unfairness to that that just should rub us the wrong way as Christians. You cannot have a major part of your population facing those kinds of hurdles, facing that kind of history, and not feel moved to make a difference. So Laurie has talked about how uh, usually this is part of a larger workshop that talks about faith and also moves to an action module. So I hope that in the coming weeks, as you have other opportunities, you'll be thinking about where, what tugs on your heart? What part of this do you really want to respond to? And what can that look like in this congregation and for you personally?
So I think that'll do it. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I'm sure you can see the way Jeff owns this material. He just uh, lives with it in his prayer and in his discernment um, a lot, I know, and that just shows. Thank you. One thing I really want to point out for us before we move to the questions is I just jotted this down in my prayer book for all time that Jeff said, we're failing to live up to God's promise. For those of you who were at 8 o'clock, that's exactly what Mike was preaching about. For those of you at 10.30, remember that. We're failing to live up to God's promise. Think about this as you hear Mike's sermon today. We're going to move on to questions. Jeff, do I hit right here? Yeah. Um, Whoops, where are the questions there? There we go. Um, Some time to take a breath. I can feel the room. Can you feel the room? It's like, ugh. <laughs> so take it, um, some time to just take a deep breath. Soak in a little what you heard. And think through these questions as we usually do in our breakfast. What does your religious tradition, our Christianity, and more specifically our Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement, have to say about the history and data that Jeff just reviewed? How do you as an individual respond to the information in the report? How do you imagine us, Holy Communion, responding? And why haven't we changed the systems that segregate St. Louis? So we'll have about 10 minutes to um, talk about that at your tables, and then we will uh, share with one another in large group.
I came around and asked if you could please um, sign in on the sign-in sheet. You'll also notice in your folder that there is a um, post-workshop evaluation. Um, you are helping, by, by signing in on the sign-in sheet and by completing the post-workshop evaluation, you are actually helping to continue this work to move forward because grantors want to know what people thought and how people were moved and how many people were presented to. So by giving your name um, and by sharing your thoughts on the evaluation, that helps uh, Faith and For the Sake of All with uh, their grant funding. Uh, so thank you for tending to that. I appreciate it. Also, I want to let you know, since you've got a pen in your hand, if you want to write this down right now, the full housing workshop will be presented on April 30th from 6 to 8 p.m. at uh, the College Church, St. Francis Xavier, April 30th. Also, these, because Faith and for the Sake of All is a ministry of Emmanuel Episcopal Church and is supported by funding from the Diocese of Missouri. So um, it is, if you receive the iSeq, maybe you'll start to notice now at the end of the iSeq where um, they list out events, you'll see Mobilizing the Faithful Workshops. They're promoted through the diocese too. So, and you can always ask me because I know how to figure it out if I don't know it off the top of my head. As I mentioned, this workshop always has three portions. Data, which Jeff agonized over how to get all that data, 100 pages of data into that brief time. Excellent job. Then faith reflection. You've been doing a shortened version of that at your table, and we'll share out on that in just a second. And then last is always action. Faith and for the sake of all was founded on the premise that we will not just enjoy a nice breakfast and walk out of here going, <laughs> Reverend James Forbes last week presented, um, preached for our faith and for the sake of all expansion kickoff, and he said, please do this with me. God does not sit around and go, uh-uh. So this presentation always ends with what comes next. Brian, has, uh, Brian Barnhart has put together a whole month of what comes next for us in this forum. We will be hearing about homelessness. We will be hearing about um, veterans, uh, specifically veterans homelessness. And then Todd Swanson is speaking. He's a fabulous speaker at the end of March from UMSL. And remind me his topic, Brian. Yeah, he, gentrification and economic development. He's a wonderful speaker. Don't miss it. So those will be some continuing ways to think about action in the month coming. As are, if you see inside of your folder, there are report recommendations on the right-hand side, as well as get involved partners. Partners, many of whom we have heard from here in our church in this space, Arch City Defenders being one of them. So our conversation as a congregation will be ongoing, building off of our commitment and the steps we've taken with the Gannon House to renovate that house and to offer it as a space to provide home in a safe neighborhood with a good school district 
for First Braverly and now St. Patrick's Center and Homeless Vets. So we've, we're taking our secret small steps for those of you who were here on Ash Wednesday for that sermon, and we'll just keep taking more together. What were you talking about at your tables? What is the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement? Oh, yeah. What does the Episcopal branch of the Jesus movement have to say to what Jeff presented? What did you talk about at your tables? Miss Hines, it's not your volume, it's other people's ears. There you go. I think we, or maybe I should say I said at this table, that we talk out of two sides of our mouths. You know, we say we are a faith that believes in um, togetherness and coming together. We say that we are a faith that believes in God and the thought that there's enough for us all. But when it comes down to it, what do we do? We hold on to what we have, and we continue in the the systems and the processes that have been set up. So I wanted to address uh, the fourth bullet point. Why haven't we changed the system that segregates St. Louis? Is that okay? And my response was very succinct. We haven't done it because we choose not to do it. Uh, we want it, not we want it, uh, the power structure, the white political power structure and the white uh, equity of this community decided that they wanted a major league soccer program. Amen. And someone woke up one morning, snapped their fingers, and by 2021, this community will have a major league soccer program with full accoutrements, stadium, practice field, and everything that's necessary in order for it to be a success. If we chose to, and when I say we, please know that I'm not talking about me as a participant in that process because I like the political power, the equity, but I'm saying we as a community that has the political power, has the political equity, have the resources, if we chose to, we could choose to address the issue of segregation and racism starting today, starting tomorrow. I asked at the table, we have a white mayor and a white county executive. How many times have you heard them bring up the issue of race or segregation or, or um, racial inequity or inequity in housing? Unless it was a political hot potato, how many times have they made it a part of their ongoing agenda? It's not a part of what we do in this community. You know, we're segregated by choice. And the community chooses for us to live that way. Unless and until we decide we no longer want to live like that, it's great to have conferences and presentations and, you know, to invest the resources to do the studies, but it won't change. It will not change. Thank you. Thank you, Chester. Do you still have the microphone over there for Lisa? Yeah, go ahead. 
So one of the things we focused on, because I brought it up, <laughs> was um, education. And I'm a teacher, three of us are teachers at this table, and I just think it has to start with the young because, um, and, and it has to start with the inequity in the way that we fund schools, and that's a statewide problem. And um, we're expecting miracles out of school districts that just simply aren't equitably funded. Um, and, I, and we kind of talked a little about how, as a church, on that third question, maybe we should start in our own backyard and do more for the U-City School District, not, um, not just giving them material things, but advocating for a more just system that sends the kids the message that we as a community care about them and their education. Because when you walk into a school that's not funded properly um, and things are falling apart um, and you've got lots of substitute teachers and all this stuff that they see, it, it tells them how the community really thinks about the importance of them and of their education. And we have to change that. And that's, that's citywide, but as a church, we're in U City. We're in U City, which seems to me, and I know that there are people in this room who know better than I do about U City schools, so please correct me where I'm wrong, but that this <coughs> city is a microcosm of our region. It's just the divide is Olive instead of Del Mar. It's, it's just a microcosm. I got that right. It is, but our schools, most of the people that, um, most of the people in our school district that can afford to send their kids elsewhere do, do so at this point, and that's not sustainable. Right. Right. Um, and I want to just uh, lift up what Chester had to say and weave it with Lisa's focus on education and, and say that um, faith and for the sake of all, while moving these workshops forward, because we have to begin, as beloved community says, with truth-telling, but as Chester points out, we cannot stop with truth-telling, um, and that is why Faith and for the Sake of All has finally, after two years, built the relationships to do that um, mobilizing the faithful expansion where programming will be brought by multiracial, multi-zip code efforts into African-American congregations. So it is both the truth-telling and the relational work to change systems. Um, I was at a meeting this week with uh, Reverend uh, Dr. Starsky Wilson, who spoke here back in August, and he said many fronts, Chester, many fronts. Faith and for the sake of all is relational. We have economic work going on with CDAs, child development accounts, so that every child in the state receives money into an account that starts at birth from the state them being able to start saving for uh, college education. There's statistics that show when that happens, kids have a much higher rate of getting to college. Because just as you said, Lisa, it shows that people believe in them and care from the minute of their birth. So, and he went on with, with other areas, but it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Governmental, educational, economic, relational, in order to, to address number four. Why do to change the system. Yeah, Bob. We actually didn't talk about this at the table, but I feel compelled to relate this story because I, I feel like it's the crux of uh, some of the problem and a way that can be solved, that, that can be solved. Um, I'm a bassoonist um, and 
I practice at Metro District 8 honor band rehearsals in practice rooms. And um, it so happened that um, a bassoonist in the high school band had his instrument, uh, his instrument broke. And so they brought it to me and I fixed it. And the kid was amazed and it was really very simple. I just hit it up against the wall and it, it miraculously fixed itself. If you want to know exactly what happened later on, let me, let me know and I'll explain it to you, but it, it's sort of funny. Um, anyway, he could hear me practicing too, and he says, oh my gosh, you know, uh, you're fantastic, you know, and you know, you, you all can be the judge of that, but uh, anyway, he was very bowled over, and he says, I want to study with you, and I said, fine, just give me a call, I gave him my contact information. He, he, he goes, he's from, um, um, shoot, um, from the West, in the West, he's just in West County, I won't identify the school, he's in, in the West County west of the river. And anyway, so we set up a date for a lesson, and he's very excited. And then he calls me with what I consider, and I've taught many kids for 40 years, a lame excuse not to come to the lesson. And I was mystified. So I contacted his band director, and I said, what's up? You know, what, why, why didn't he come? He said, well, you know, um, it's where you live. Um, his dad didn't want to bring him into the city for the lesson. Okay? Now, that's a problem. So, um, I mean, my wife and family have lived in St. Louis City since, well, since five years after we came to St. Louis. Largely by the suggestion of my wife, she wanted to live in the city. My whole take on this is that we can talk about funding and all this kind of stuff, but there's a fear factor when you get west of the river of anything on the east side for whatever reason, and it's going to take white families from West County moving to the city of St. Louis in a new white flight before any of this can change. All right, dear people of God, once again, we have too short amount of time. I have got to get it. Mike will start without me. You know he will. <laughs> Denise, 30 seconds, and then we will end. That is basically, I, I think the root of this whole issue is that we live in a racist society. And one of the aspects of this fear of going into the city is that uh, our culture has a myth that wherever there are a large number of African Americans, it must be dangerous. This is not true, but it's a myth that is in our culture. And I've had to instruct many white people who were otherwise low in prejudice that we do live in a racist society. And when they go into an African American neighborhood, they are safe because the law respects their safety more than the people that live there. And it's not that I like it that way. That's just the way it is. Truth. Yes. All right. Thank you. I wish we could keep going. I encourage you to come and hear the Faith and for the Sake of All Health workshop or this Fullness of the Housing workshop. Um, I'm going to ask if a couple people could come help Jeff. 
to collect the sign-in sheets, collect the post uh, workshops, any folders that weren't used so those resources could go back. Blessings and thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah.